Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Have you ever noticed how athletes often have a routine that they go through before they perform? For example, a basketball player might step to the free throw line, dribble three times, and then shoot. Some people might think the benefits of this are all in their head. However, there is a science to habit forming that can have benefits far beyond what you might imagine. And it could ultimately make you a better adjuster, too. So let's talk about creating skill by creating habits and routine. I first began thinking about this subject many years ago when I first read Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. In that book, he talks about the three parts of any habit. The three parts are a cue, a trigger, and a reward. As he points out, the key to changing any habit is to keep the cue and the reward, but change the trigger. Many years ago, when I was playing football, I had a middle linebacker who's now a head coach who was really obsessed with the game. He would always say that in football, if you have to think about what you're doing, you've already lost. His whole routine was to intentionally train proper behaviors and then ingrain them until they became instinctive reactions. The way that he did that was to focus on the cue and the trigger. The reward would take care of itself. Early on in chiropractic school, I recognized that it wasn't enough for me to simply learn how to adjust. I was going to be expected to perform the same adjustments multiple times a day and day after day. So I recognized that I needed to create the same kind of training to create a cue and a trigger. I already knew what the reward was going to be. To this day, I would describe the way I adjust based on a feeling. I have to get the right feel because that's my cue. Let me walk you through several different adjustments and I'll describe the cue I create and the trigger I have programmed. Let's start with the pelvic bench. First, I have to have the patient in the proper position. I have three pet peeves. And they are when they bend their bottom leg, when they bring their bottom hip too close to the edge of the bench, and the biggest one is when they cross their arms with their hands on their shoulders. I very methodically position every patient where I want them. I have several patients who I've seen for years who will comment that I always reposition them. Yes, I always reposition everyone because nobody can position themselves exactly the way I want them. First, I straighten the bottom leg. Then I bend their top leg and I hold it with my knee. I then tuck their pelvis just the right amount and position their bottom hip at the one-third mark toward the front of the table. If the hip is too far back, I won't be able to get them to roll. And if the hip is too far forward, they'll roll too well and too much. I want the bottom hip slightly anterior to the top hip. This is important to ensure that the spine is neutral at the moment of correction. I don't want to adjust them with their front of their pelvis facing the floor, but I also don't want to, the, to adjust them with their pelvis facing the ceiling either. Finally, the arms. I will grab the bottom arm just below the elbow, and I'll pull the shoulder down so it isn't up by their ear. I do not want to pull their shoulder forward. It'll move forward slightly when I pull down, but I don't want it to move any more anterior than, it, than is absolutely necessary for the shoulder to move down to where I want it. Next, I take a very specific contact. For example, if it's an SI joint. For the PI, then I will be in, on the inferior portion of the SI joint, but not in a general way, but there's a very specific point that I need to contact. If it's a PIN, I'll be on an inferior and medial point where I have leverage to create both motions simultaneously. If I'm pushing a PIEX, it's an inferior and lateral point 
that allows me to create both motions without moving my hand. If you're new to this, you have to learn to find that point that will allow both motions from the same contact point. Finally, I'll stabilize with the other hand by placing my pisiform under the clavicle on the outer third of the clavicle. This is an important point because I've seen many who attempt to stabilize with their hand over the patient's hand or on the patient's bicep or shoulder. So let me go back a step. After you pull the patient's bottom arm down, cross their hand over their abdomen so their hand rests gently under their bottom ribs on the opposite side, or in this case, on the upside. You then place the top hand in a wrist over wrist position. This will cause the top shoulder to roll back and it will open up the chest. This is essential, but it's often overlooked. Now when you contact under the outer third of the clavicle with your pisiform, your first motion is to push superior. There's a sweet spot of maximum relaxation. Pushing too far is just as detrimental as not pushing far enough. You have to find that sweet spot and then push slightly posterior until you find the second sweet spot. This part is essential for creating an adjustment that requires a low amount of force, which translates into high precision. In other words, this is a finesse adjustment instead of a power adjustment. Okay, there's one more step. And then I'm gonna show you what the real magic is. So stick with me here for just a second more. Now that I have this position, I will roll the patient about 10 to 20 degrees. That's all, don't overroll them. At the same time that I roll them, I'm gonna elevate myself so I roll the patient underneath me. I'm then gonna come down on top of the patient so my ASIS is on their hip and I'm gonna lay my full weight on them and pin them to the table. At this point, my back foot will probably be in the air. I will then roll the patient more with my body until my back foot is on the floor. Okay, so here it is. If I do all of this correctly, then the moment my foot hits the floor, it creates a feeling that I immediately identify as the cue. The setup to this point is purposeful and disciplined in order to create the cue. Everything from this point on is the trigger that's been trained to the point of being involuntary. I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess that this part is harder for me to describe because I don't think about this part. As much as I focus mentally on everything up to this part, I'm equally as unfocused mentally on what is to follow. This is the part where if you have to think about it, you've already lost. Let's say you have the patient in position and you've triggered the cue. The one final step is to find the exact line of correction. I usually take a moment to hunt for the perfect line of correction. Good is good, but perfect is better. If I can get better info, then I'm gonna take the time to get it. If what I have is as good as it's gonna get, then it's time to go. This is an important part of the, of the conversation that you have with yourself, and it requires intense honesty. Hopefully you don't struggle with being honest with yourself, but if you do, this is a practice that will help you to work through that, I promise. You hunt for that perfect line of drive and then push the bone in that direction to preload the proper line of drive. Now here's the real trick where you create a cue and a trigger. Patient relaxation is a key. The art form is being able to use your body and your movements to create patient relaxation. If you're a student, this is something that I recommend you practice. It's not an adjustment, so you can't get in trouble for adjusting, but you just wanna feel how your movement creates patient relaxation and then how you lose it. I think this is a real secret sauce, but it's something you can't see by merely watching someone else adjust. You can, however, feel it, but it tends to be so quick that it's really hard to learn from it. Okay, so in that brief instant, 
the patient will relax in the perfect position. That is the full cue, and it will trigger an immediate response, which is the adjustment. The adjustment itself is the hardest part to refine because in its perfect state, it's involuntary, but initially it's not. I can't make this perfect for you, but here are my tips. First, tighten your abs. Do this by sucking in your belly button about a half inch and hold it throughout the entire adjustment. This isn't just for side posture, but it's for every adjustment. It's a strange paradox, but tightening your core will allow you to relax without losing strength. Second, focus on creating an arched line of drive that follows the motion of the joint and not a straight linear thrust. And finally, focus on depth and control the depth of your thrust with precision. Okay, so now that we've covered the details, let's talk about knee chest and high-low. Again, positioning is key. High-low is pretty self-explanatory, but knee chest positioning is everything. You have to get the knees in just the right position below the hips, but you know the right position by feeling the tension in the back. You also need patient cooperation to make sure that they drop their belly as much as possible. In fact, that's the exact phrasing that I use. I tell the patient, now drop your belly toward the floor as much as possible. In this case, the cue comes from the hand position and the dropping of the belly. The big mistake that I see on this adjustment is preloading too much in a particular direction. Don't preload with torque because torque comes at the end of the adjustment and it's only slight. Don't set up with too much lateral or medial preload either. Thoracic segments don't have much lateral bending, so that kind of preload is unnecessary. Simply find the SP or TP or mammillary that you intend to adjust. Lightly lay your soft piezoform on top of it. No preload in any direction. If the patient has excessive skin and you need tissue slack, then take tissue slack in the direction of the line of correction, but then lay your soft piezoform directly on top of the contact point. Now, take a slight I to S line of drive until you feel the soft spot and the patient relaxes. When the vertebra drops into this position, that will be your cue. The trigger is to just adjust P to A with a tiny, tiny torque at the end. Okay, and of course we must conclude with the one that everybody obsesses over, the cervical and upper thoracic adjustment in the chair. All right, I hope you're ready for this because my process is extremely obsessive. First, I start with my feet. You have to have good balance and a strong anchor to the ground to make the rest of this work. I place the foot opposite the side of my contact hand, just inside the back chair leg, but up against it so I can feel it. This anchors me to the chair so that if I need to move my upper body during the setup, I'm anchored to the floor and the chair, and I don't lose my balance or start moving around and lose my lineup with the patient. The other foot is just kicked to the side, so I have a shoulder width stance. If I'm adjusting a short person or a kid, like when I adjust my own kids, I simply move both feet laterally so that I'm in the side split to the degree necessary to obtain the appropriate height to adjust the patient in front of me, since I need to be low enough to have an I to S drive as my initial movement. Next, I contact the SP of the segment I'm going to adjust with the thumb of my non-adjusting hand. I'm very particular about the placement of my contact. As my thumb is sitting parallel to the floor and the thumbnail portion of the thumb is over the SP, I use this as a guide for proper placement. If I'm contacting the SP, I place the contact finger directly inferior to the tip of the thumb. And if I'm contacting the lamina, then I place my contact finger right at the tip of my thumb. It's a very subtle difference, only about a couple millimeters, but that's why I use this method to make sure my contact is precisely placed. Next, 
I need to tilt the head toward my contact hand. I don't find that it's beneficial to force the head into lateral bending. Instead, I use my contact hand to create relaxation in the patient, and then I allow the head to simply fall forward toward the contact hand. When the head stops moving, the stabilization will lock it into that exact spot. The biggest thing that I see is that most people don't get their stabilization elbow far enough forward or anterior enough to create an A to P stabilization. When the elbow is too far posterior, it ends up creating rotation. It's also essential to place the stabilization hand far enough forward on the patient's face, which means the thenar should be near the zygomatic arch and not posterior to the eye. As you preload the segment with the contact finger in the line of correction, while simultaneously pushing back with the stabilization hand to prevent any actual movement of the head, the bone will sink in and that moment is the cue. Now, I did not mention the strap before, but I will now. If you don't use the strap, you probably should, especially if you're struggling with the chair and especially for upper thoracics and upper cervicals. The key is proper placement. The strap goes under the arm on the side of the contact hand. It crosses the chest. Now this is the key part. It does not go over the shoulder on the stabilization side, like by up by the AC joint. Its proper placement is the most lateral part of the deltoid. This is especially important when adjusting the atlas. The reason I mention this is because if you're new to this, you may have difficulty finding that point that I described as the cue. The strap will help with that immensely and make it easier for you to find that point, and the stabilization will also allow you to make the adjustment with less force and even a little less speed. Now, for cervicals, I need to describe the trigger in a little more detail. You don't have to do it my way, but this is what I have trained to be involuntary. You hold your hand in a vertical position so your fingers are stacked one over the other. This is the position I use when I make initial contact, so the initial motion is I to S. Once contact is made, I then elevate my elbow to transition that initial I to S into a more P to A movement without losing any of the I to S I already have. This is all done on setup, so from that position and setup, here's the trigger. I flip my wrist as though I was throwing a frisbee. This is something I've practiced countless times, and I continue to practice and perfect on a daily basis. And that is the point of all this. You have to train the trigger to be involuntary. But once it's involuntary, you still have to train it to be more precise. For that to happen, you have to know what the exact motion should be, and then drill it until it becomes involuntary. Once you reach that point, you simply need to know how to create the cue and then let the trigger do what the trigger does. I also want to mention that you don't have to do what I do. You're welcome to create your own trigger. If, however, you don't have a trigger or aren't sure what you are supposed to be doing, feel free to use what I've given you and copy it. I certainly didn't create it. I had it taught to me, and I drilled it until it became second nature. One of the funny things about the word professionalism is that most dictionaries seem to struggle to define it. They basically say that professionalism is to exhibit the qualities of a professional, but then they struggled to find what a professional is as well. Professionalism was a word that I felt compelled to define for myself early in my life, in high school to be exact. I recognized that the expectation of professionals is that they have the ability to perform at the highest level regardless of the circumstances around them. I'm not going to lie, that's a lofty goal. And whether you like it or not, that's exactly what your patients expect of you. The only chance of reaching that level is to have a plan, a plan for creating a routine and developing a habit of doing chiropractic. Develop a habit and you'll be able to adapt to any circumstance and any challenge. I hope you found this helpful today 
and then it gives you a blueprint for how you think about what you do, the cue, the trigger, and the reward. A simple formula for taking your skills to the next level. I know that listening to this may have sparked some questions in your mind. I do have a 1505 Club YouTube channel that has absolutely nothing on it, so I'll get to work and see if I can create some videos to cover everything that I've talked about today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.